Well, good morning again. I would invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, page 806 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you, page 806. This morning we're going to read the verse, first nine verses of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. So. And as you're turning there, as always, if you have a question or two about what was said, sung, or read this morning, I would be happy to try to answer those questions for you when our time together is completed. We're going to read the Bible as we always do, and we're going to pray as we always need to. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, and by the way, verses 4 all the way to 9 is is actually one long sentence in the Greek. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way, And all your speaking and all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Amen. Let's let's bow together and let's pray. Our God and Father, you are the living God and we are your servants. And so often, Father, we come to you like Jehoshaphat, who with the task before him and the enemies against him, he declares in the public, public square, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And so we thank you this morning that in the mystery of your providence that you, you have firmly set your love upon us, that you have chosen us, you have redeemed us at an unimaginable cost and giving us unbelievable privileges of your grace. And although we are not what we should be, we are are not what we used to be. We are what we are by your grace and nothing more. So please now, Father, as we open up your book, may the Holy Spirit teach us from it in order that each of us will quickly and happily fall under its instruction as your word is increasingly fashioned in the very framework of our lives. And so we would ask for Jesus' sake that you would make this moment great. Amen. Well, the last time that we were together, we discovered that the church that the Apostle Paul himself planted in Corinth was an absolute mess. However, it was six words in English, three words in Greek. Verse 2, if your Bible is open, it was the Ecclesio Theo Corintho. It was the church of God in Corinth. It was a mess, but it was God's church. It was full of problems and snobbery and sin and division and heresy and imbalance that some were having a total disregard for others, but it was God's church. And so it was just like every other genuine church, and we shouldn't be surprised at this. I hope we're not. The church back then and there, and the church here and now, the church in every age at its best 
is imperfect. After all, just think for a moment or two about the kind of people that make up the church. So look around, look at yourself, and look at me. And by all means, if you are perfect, stand up, reveal yourself. We need you desperately. No. The church of God is full of imperfect people. The church of God is a communion of saints who are sinners. The tension then is felt and it's real. We get it right. We get it wrong. We are high on the mountain. We are dragged back down in the valley. We laugh and we bury our faces in our hands and we cry. Even churches with outstanding reputations make outstanding mistakes. Somehow a church in Southern California, not so long ago, a church that if I named it, most of you would know it, a church that many would point to and say, yes, sir, that's the way we need to be. We need to be more like them. However, somehow they allowed a man on their elder board who in the course of his days there had, had executed many horrible, unthinkable, illegal acts. Imperfect. And whenever we're unprepared to acknowledge that straightforward fact of the church's imperfection, then surely a a healthy, uh, unhealthy dose of gullibility will set in. And when you combine gullibility with dissatisfaction and just a pinch of disenchantment, people will then go on a quest for the perfect church akin to the quest for the Holy Grail. Anywhere and everywhere, but never satisfied. Now, this is not to say there is never a time to relocate a church, but it is to say that when the motives are warped, the inexperience will more than likely be as well. So how do we deal with that? How do you deal with imperfection in the life of God's church? How do you deal with our imperfections, our sins, our divisions, and our biases and imbalances in the life of God's church? Well, certainly the chief way, the way that the Apostle Paul would deal with this is to take the medicine that he gives us in these first nine verses of 1 Corinthians because you can see very plainly that Paul does not begin his letter to this imperfect, messed up church. He doesn't begin with tough love. No, he'll get to the correction soon enough. He will affirm them before he ever begins to correct them. And this is absolutely fundamental, and therefore it becomes very, very important, our own understanding of life in God's church here. And as I say these things, I mean, this might even sound to some unchristian, or perhaps maybe even un-American, because what Paul gives to this rebel church up front is not tough love, but he gives to them proper thinking. Proper thinking about what happened to them when God summoned them into his family. What happened to them when they became in Christ and how God himself, get this, God himself will be the one who will, verse 8, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, why? I mean, come on, God, these Corinthians are messed up. Why would you do that? Well, uh, because verse 2, this is God's church and verse 9, see, God is faithful. So so Paul approaches this messed up church, not kicking and screaming, but he approaches them with doctrinal truth, unchanging truth, regardless of their current condition. Now, just, just as a brief aside, for some of us here, if we are parents and we have unruly young children, 
and thus far we have met the situation with no success whatsoever, then here's a pattern and here's a principle that I would almost plead you to follow and consider. Because this is God's, the, the writer behind the writer, this is God's first step in dealing with an unruly church body. So I'm going to say to you again, Paul will not begin with, with hard words. That will discourage them. He will begin with doctrinal truth. That will encourage them and that will affirm them. Therefore, he'll begin with proper thoughts about them. Because of what God in Christ has already done for you, God will begin to guide you. Because God in Christ has already changed everything about you. Despite, and this is absolutely terrific, this is grace, despite the fact of your sinful behavior. Well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You know, you got to get tough within these days and you got to make them do and you got to get on them and you got to stay on them. That's the way we did it. Yes, sir. So, so only if the church would do more of this and, and do more of that and be like the one over there and do what they're doing over there and do that better and do this better, then they would be perfect. As if the whole thing depended on us. Our self-improvement will not lead to ultimate justification. This will just drive us deeper into ourselves. And what a letdown. What a letdown that will be. Nothing ever ultimately depends on us. The church's confidence should be wholly and squarely placed on God's generous, generosity and God's faithfulness and what God has done. And here's the key. What God has done in Christ 2,000 years ago and nothing more. And aren't you glad that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he didn't send a breakup letter, right? Dear Corinthian church, I know we've been together for, for a while, but I just feel like it's time to break up. There's another place and she's so much better. Have you ever gotten a breakup letter? It's not any fun. I, I dated only two girls in my life, one of whom is my wife. One tried to break, break up with me and I didn't let her. The other one sent me a letter. It was awful. You know this, dear Joe. We, we can still be friends. I like you only as a friend. Dear Joe, it's not you, it's me. No, wait a minute, it is you, Joe. <laughs> it, it, that line is very empowering. But last night we went out to eat, and the, play, the first place we went to, we just decided we didn't need to be there. And after already ordering, I ran back to the thing, and I said, we need, we need to leave. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, it's not you. It's, it's me. <laughs> I felt like going back in there and saying it again. I felt so strong when I said that. C.S. Lewis, on the deep, deep, committed, faithful love of God for his people, God is not proud. God stoops to conquer. He will have us, even though we have clearly shown that we prefer everything else to him. George Matheson, oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary, sinful soul in thee. And so that takes us to our first point this morning. The points are pretty straightforward. Who am I? That's point number one. And you can see there, if your Bible's open, that as Paul introduces himself, he's answering the question who he is. Verse one, Paul called to be a, an apostle of Christ Jesus. 
So what Paul is doing is immediately establishing his apostolic credentials in the context of the congregation. Why? Well, number one, he assumes that God will do what he promised and builds his church so that everybody knows that Paul was the one who planted. Not everyone knows Paul. But secondly, some may be tempted to say, what is this material and why should we pay any attention to it at all? And the answer is, well, we must pay attention to it because this is the word of God given by the man of God, the apostle Paul. And so Paul, by using the word call, verse one, acknowledges God's initiative in his life. This is, this is great. That he could have no more have been a Christian than there could have been a church in Corinth if God is not calling both into existence. Paul was called. He had been called out of his old life of hatred towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was called into the discovery of the truth of Jesus Christ and to the responsibility of preaching the cross of Jesus Christ to the Gentile world. And no one could sway fall from the fact that he was summoned because that's the weight of the word call. In fact, I almost wish the translators would use the word summon. The word call in the Greek language is a heavy word. So this is not, hey, what do you think about coming over here? That's not, this is a summons. This is come now. So Paul was summoned by Christ to do the work. And he, he will go and tell them that the same God, Corinthian church, that, that called me is the same God who called you. And if he didn't call you, then there'd be no church in Corinth to write to. And if he didn't call me, then there'd be no apostle Paul to write to the church. This is a heavy word. The, uh, theologians refer to this as the effectual calling. And, and believe it or not, a few years ago when our family was working through the shorter catechism and we were trying to memorize the question, what is effectual calling? Answer, we never could get it just right. But anyway, effectual calling is this. It's the work of God's spirit. This is what happened to Paul. And this is what happened to the Corinthian Christians. It's the work of God's spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and our misery awakens our minds and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and renews our wills. And God persuades us and God enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. In other words, God called and by God's grace, we answered. He was called to be an apostle. And, and here Paul is acknowledging that, that he was brought to the task. So this isn't, this isn't Paul by church election, no. And this is not Paul by, by self-appointment, no. And by the way, if you know people who call themselves an apostle... Run from them quickly. The office of an apostle was limited and foundational. It was unique and unrepeatable. It was limited in its time frame because it was constrained by the calling of Jesus Christ himself. Only so many needed, only so many summoned. It was foundational as the apostles were the authoritative representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. They were commissioned by him. To listen to them was to listen to him. No removal of what they said was allowable. So it would be very, very foolish for us to say, I like the words of Jesus, but I can't stand the words of Paul. No. It would be equally foolish for any church not to follow their pattern in all things church. Jesus sent Paul. Paul is Jesus' ambassador, therefore we must pay attention to him. So the office of the apostle was limited, and it was foundational, it was unique, and it was unrepeatable. It was unique because part of the criteria for apostleship was to have seen with your eyes the risen Christ. And it was unrepeatable because they received the truth of God in its complete entirety. So there's nothing new that God needed to tell them 
and there's nothing new that we need to know. The work of Christ on Calvary was a final and it was a finished work. That's, that's what they spoke. Uh, telestio is the cry of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross. It's, it's translated, it's finished, but you can translate it mission accomplished. What needed to be done is done. And so at the end of verse 1, Paul goes on to mention verse 1, Sosthenes, our brother. Remember, he was the ex-synagogue ruler who was converted follower of Jesus Christ. And he's more than likely Paul's scribe here. Oftentimes, that's the way Paul does things. So that's our first point. Who am I? I am Paul. I am the apostle of Christ. Don't listen to me because I'm Paul. Listen to me because I'm an apostle by Christ, by God's will. He establishes a connection with them. We're both called. He establishes his credentials. Christ sent me. God willed it. So listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Okay, then that takes us to our second point, who, who they are. So immediately Paul begins to write to the church about their identity, who they are. So, so this is for the Corinthians and it's for the Christians in Cohasset. And again, verse 2, he begins by telling them that the church in Corinth, like the church here in Cohasset, is God's church. So the church is not theirs in any real sense of the word. And if you find yourself saying, you know, our church, or this is Mr. X's church, or it's my church, you know, do your best to cease. I know sometimes we let it slip. I understand that. But know that God is the one who selects the people in it because God is the one who puts the people in it. God sets the mission. God sets the mission, and so we all fall under it. Church. Uh, the Greek word is ekklesia. The, the assembly of God's summon people. That's the definition of the word church. <clears throat> so we're stewards here. Nobody owns anything here. We are servants here. Our first question is always in everything. How will this appear to God? God is to be our first interest in everything. And what we've been given in God's church, we have been given. And yeah, we'll give an account for that. But the fact is, everything belongs to God. We are stewards. We own nothing. We are servants. We are His. And I don't know about you, but the, one of the things I always <clears throat> enjoyed about renting is that ultimately you didn't have the responsibility for the place. God will see to it that we will receive his proper prayer as his church. He owns it. Now, again, as you think about this messy church of God in Corinth, Paul begins then to remind them who they are. Hey, church, something huge happened to you when you became a Christian. Again, he doesn't put the hammer down. He reasons with them. Yes, you are misbehaving badly. Therefore, you need to think properly. So who are you, Christian in Cohasset and Christian in Corinth? Who are you? Well, verse 2, they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Right? We know this. You, you are clean before God in Christ, in you. Not one blemish does he see. To sanctify here means to be cleansed. It's, it's written in the, the perfect passive participle, which means you, you can't say, when you look at verse 2, you can't say, see, we're called to be holy. Now, come on, you should be more holy. That's not what Paul's saying right here. To be written in the perfect passive participle means this, that our sanctification is a past complete action with continuous and abiding results by God 
in his mercy through Christ. Again? Yes? Again. Our sanctification is a past completed action with continuous and abiding results by God's mercy in Christ. In other words, the Christian has been set apart by God as holy. She has been declared holy. He has been declared holy only because of God's mercy revealed in the giving of his son to take our place and die our death. That is what Paul is saying. So there's like, you know, the, the problem in Corinth was their division. Level one Christianity. Level two Christianity. Level three Christianity. No. No. Holy. Because God has done it. So then we just go back for a moment to our unruly children. We reason with them. What are you doing? Don't you know who you are? Jesus made you holy. You're a holy child. You're not the holy child, but you're a holy child. He died for you. This is the power of the gospel. He died for you so that you would be declared holy. I think I've told you this before. I'm sure I have. Whenever I did something wrong growing up in the home of my mother and father, all my father had to do was say to me two words. I told someone this week, oh, Joe, it was painful to hear, but it was tender to hear. He, my dad was reasoning with me. What are you doing, Joe? Don't you know who you are? It's the same thing here. Hey, Corinthian Christians, as bad as you are, and you are bad, let me reason with you. You've been made holy by the blood of Christ. Verse 2b, and you are called to be holy. Hagios is the root word in both words here in verse 2 for sanctified and holy. It means you have been summoned into the presence of God and he has declared you and he has announced you holy. I mean, think about that. Think about that. I mean, part part of me just wants to cry. I mean, that is absolutely beautiful. That is what God has done in Christ. No wonder angels long to be to, to look into these things. They want to know what it is to be justified. They'll never know that. Okay, so get this. This is who you are in Christ, despite yourself. You Christians have been set apart from sin, set apart for God, changed for God, inwardly consecrated by God's Spirit. And because faith without works is dead, the Christian is outwardly being renewed, sometimes slow, sometimes fast, for God's service, in God's church, and into God's world. Sanctification, inwardly renewed, outwardly consecrated. I don't know about you, but that's terrific news. God has called every one of us here by our names. We're all here by divine appointment. God knows who you are. And only unbelievers disguising himself or herself as a genuine believer, would be troubled by all this. They would be like the prodigal son's uh, elder brother who would say to his generous father, jealous of his grace, don't you know how hard I've worked all these years? And, 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 and lickety-split, you let that guy back in here? And what does the father say? Well, he says something like this, yes, I did. And here's why. Because I'm the father. And I, the father, said he was in. I declared it, and there you go. Luther, sin doesn't hurt us as much as our own righteousness. And just as God called them, you can see there in verse 2, the latter part, they call on him. 
Verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Okay, what do called Christians do? Well, they call on God. It would be out of place to have a Christian who doesn't ever call on God. Okay, so then what do Christians know? You can see it there, that, they are, that we know that there are people everywhere who call on the name of the Lord. So the Christian clique is just crushed right there, right? It's just crushed. God's people are everywhere. So in just one verse, Paul gives very, very clear instruction on just who the members of God's true church are. Well, who are they? Because once one becomes a Christian, they don't just become part of nothing. They become part of a body, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so who are the members of God's church? Well, those are the ones who have been called by God in the gospel. They respond to God in repentance and faith in Christ. There are those whom God has set apart. God has declared them holy. God is the one who's making them holy. They're light and salt. They're servants and children. And they, part, and they are part of his church And that's the starting place. So are you with me? This is what Paul is telling them. Hey, you rascals in Corinth, (laughs) you are holy. You've been called by God, summoned by God. You, You are part of a global family. You are spoken for because Jesus is your king and Jesus is your savior. And then it is to those people, verse three, that Paul blesses. Grace and peace, the the infinite blessings of God, the shalom of God to you, the very best of God to you, tranquility and all the privileges of God's grace to the church of God in Corinth and to the church of God in Cohasset. To everybody? Yes, everybody. The troublemakers? Absolutely. See? Do you not see how amazing grace is? So, so please, when you read your Bibles, don't, don't pass over verse 3 so quickly. Take a deep breath. This is not niceties. This is necessity. Who among us right now does not need this blessing in our lives? I hate leaving home in the morning. There's only one thing that I really like about leaving home in the morning is when my wife looks at me in my eyes and I look at her in her eyes and we say, God bless you. And listen, if I don't get a God bless you when I leave, I walk in and I get two words, two phrases. One, get out of here. And two, God bless you. It's not niceties. It's necessity. Now, one final thing before we move to our final point, verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. You see, this is why people can thank God for us. It's first that we are in Christ, and as a result of being in Christ, we know his grace. We know his grace because we need his grace because there's things in our lives and our personalities which do not immediately enable us to be thankful for each other if we're going to be honest. So there are things that are in our personality that, frankly, we would change. There are things in our personality that other people would would probably change. Characteristics, bents of our behavior, features of our own lives that, that if we would have been God, we'd have just removed it. But we're not God, so here we are. So when we look around at each other, we don't, we don't oftentimes immediately like each other. And it's pretty foolish to suggest that we will. So again, what are we going to do? 
We'll look at your Bible, verse 4. I always thank God for you because of his grace in Christ Jesus. You see, act of grace is the thing that ultimately makes us thankful for one another. It's the evidence of the grace of God in each other's lives that we thank God for. That's what Paul is saying. So even though we, we might be difficult, God's grace is working in us. So we are not what we want to be and we're not what others would like us to be. And we clash sometimes by dent of our personality and our bents. But here's the thing. It's okay in Christ because God's grace is working in them. I see it. And therefore, that person is my brother and I love them. And that lady is my sister and I love her because we are God's family only because of God's grace in Jesus. And you see, that is what keeps a community of faith Together, It's not because we act the same way, we have the same entrance, or we all you know, wear the same coats. It's because the manifold grace of God can be seen in the context of his church. Only because of grace. Which means only because of the cross. Which means everything in the church of Jesus Christ is covered in the blood of Jesus. Everything. No cross, no grace. Don't lose that thought. So then Paul begins to speak to them in verses 4 and 5 in the plural, right? In Jesus, verse 5, you have been enriched. Verse 7, you don't lack any gift. And any sensible person reading that would know that this has to do with the whole church. Because what Christian has every gift? No Christian has every gift. Which means that the reason why God puts us in community is that so that only together, together, only together, we will not lack any spiritual gift. So right now, there's nothing, there's nothing missing in this mosaic except more people. There's nothing missing right now to accomplish the purposes of God. And listen, if, if you or I are not involved to a healthy degree to a local church, we are starving ourselves of a necessary grace given to others through Christ, through his death. So this is not saying, do you attend church? That's one thing. This is not that. Do you serve in the church? That, that's the key. That's the key. And that's why Paul will say later on in the letter, that's why the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Yes, yes, you do. Because together and only together, we are what we should be in Christ. And so in verses 5 and 6, Paul we won't take any time on this just to say that he acknowledges that the Corinthian church is very good with speaking and very good with knowing because Jesus Christ has given them these gifts. And that takes us to our final point this morning. The first point, who am I? Well, I'm the Apostle Paul. I'm an apostle, so you should listen to me. Well, who, who are you? Well, as bad as you are, you are holy because of Christ. Okay, so then what God in Christ will do, that's our final point. So we come back to our original premise, that as messed up as the Corinthian church was, it was still God's church. And so what Paul does to them, he affirms them first before he ever begins to correct them. And rightly so, he attaches everything to his affirmations, please don't lose this, everything to Paul's affirmation that he attaches to the church is attached to the cross of Jesus Christ. So the short, short word grace is always understood in the great work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Please don't ever lose that. 
And by the way, by the way, if you ever have the privilege to lead a devotion, give a talk, a lesson, a sermon, how could we ever talk without focusing on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if you or I are leading the devotion, and all we're saying is in a hundred different ways, do better, be better, try harder, you don't need to be a Christian to say those things. And you certainly don't need a cross. And how is that going to help anyone? That is law with no gospel. Hugh Palmer, a quote that I just found by accident. I just stumbled into the quote Friday afternoon. Hugh Palmer, a preacher, says this. If you want to be impressive, you won't preach the cross. You see, we can never approach God on our own merit. How how could we? So the great encouragement for them, verse 8, in Christ, Christ will keep you strong to the end so that in the end you'll be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blameless on the day when Christ calls us up. Blameless before the throne of God. Blameless because of Jesus. And again, who is he saying such wonderful things to? Those messy, muddled up Christians in Corinth. So you see, we are not saved by grace through faith in order that we can stay saved by endeavors through works. See, if you're the kind of person who's always wondering about whether you're standing with God is right, then you need to know this. You need to remember John Owen. I know I say it too much, but I say it to myself almost every day. I can wake up every morning with the deeply settled assurance that I am not, I cannot relate to God on the basis of my personal performance, but only on the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the only reason that I'll be blameless on that day is the same reason that I'm blameless on this day. And why is that? Because in my place, Jesus Christ stood. At Calvary, my sin was dealt with. Imputed righteousness. Upward we look and see him there who made an end to all our sin. And of course, the strength behind that is verse 9, right? The faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God who will keep us to the end. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. So Christian, as we, as we get ready to dismiss here, think like this. Christ is sustaining me. Christ is granting me fellowship so that I can view the future with absolute confidence. Not because my wallet is fat. And not because my brain is bright. And certainly not because my body is strong. But because God is faithful. God is faithful. And in a thousand different ways, known and unknown, public and personal, we can all affirm the faithfulness of God just here on planet earth. But, but in an infinite number of ways, we will soon affirm together in God's heaven, because we're blameless before the throne, we'll affirm together God is faithful. God is faithful. So think just for a minute. You got the worst church maybe in the whole world. What do you say to them? You're holy because of the blood of Jesus. God summoned you into his presence. He's not ever, ever going to dismiss you. You're going to be blameless on the day that will matter most. You're blameless now. And guess what? All through the days of your life, 
He's going to make sure that you're ushered safely into his heaven. Because God is faithful. Check your hearts. Got to be a little bit of fire in there. Just a little bit of fire on all those good truths that Paul gave us in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray together. Father, will you please help us to believe these things? And will you please help us to live and think and decide in the course of our days in light of these things? And we ask this, Father, for just one reason, for the glory and the pleasure of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both this morning and every morning till Christ returns or calls us home. Amen.